Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. With me today, Naomi Smith is chief exec of the recently relaunched Best for Britain, Best for Britain 2, Best for Britainer. Hello, Naomi. How are you? <laughs> well, yes, if any listeners missed it, of course, they can re-watch on our YouTube channel and hear Emily Thornberry and David Liddington and Caroline Lucas and others making the case for us as a new organisation, uh, promoting internationalism. And Dorian, you got a great answer from Emily to your question about Labour's position on Brexit. So well done. Um, I think that was probably the clearest response we've had from a Labour politician on there. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> So, Nemi, this week marks 100 years since partition on the island of Ireland. To celebrate the occasion, uh, the DUP is gearing up for its first leadership contest in its 50-year history, with Sir Geoffrey Donaldson MP uh, going up against Stormont Agriculture Minister and, excitingly, New Earth creationist Edwin Poots. Poots, Poots. Why hasn't there ever been a contest before? And who's likely to win this one? Because that does seem like a weird fact that they haven't actually had a contest before. Well, they've only had three leaders. Um, so if you remember, the DUP was very much the the child of Ian Paisley Sr. And then Peter Robinson took over and then Arlene Foster after that. So it, it was just a case of, of those being uncontested um, elections each time. Just, you know, no one ever challenged them. There was this sort of obvious heir apparent each time. So it is interesting, <clears throat> yes, that, that this time there does seem to be um, a little bit of a split uh, between the two of them. So this this battle between Poots and Donaldson is probably going to be more about who can better prove they can hold the line against the realities of the modern world, um, especially um, of the Brexit disaster that, of course, they both advocated and still do, despite all evidence to the contrary. It is looking at the moment like Poots will win. Um, but the other election happening is also for the role of deputy leader because Nigel Dodds has also said that he will be resigning. So they're going to need to fill both the leadership and the deputy leadership positions. Um, and Poots is even more hardline on everything from homophobia to the age of the earth conspiracies or indeed the restoration of a hard border on the island of Ireland. Um, and the DUP electorate are really running scared of this this party that's emerged in the last decade or so, TUV, the traditional Ulster Voice Party, who have been encroaching on the DUP's vote share over time. And the electorate for this election are DUP MLAs and MPs. But the vast majority of them are MLAs. I think there's about nearly 30 of them. And with Northern Ireland elections next year, the MLAs are going to be all eyes on which candidate is the most likely to secure them a win at the ballot box. And so do they not believe in evolution either? Or do they just consider this a, a lovable foible? <laughs> Who's they in this question? The electorate. The uh, do you Oh, right. OK. okay. Um, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that, that most of them have a very biblical view uh, of of creationism yes can i ask about the 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 length of time the world has been around myth how do, do they have a specific number four thousand years four thousand no i'm pretty right. sure it's isn't it since four thousand bc because i've been researching oh. something about oh. about biblical i'm pretty sure it's six thousand in total because it's four thousand bc plus obviously right, 2, right. and also four thousand years would be absurd right whereas six thousand years makes perfect sense lots of so, time for the, dinos- the dinosaurs to pop up for a little bit <laughs> <laughs> Incredible stuff. It's kind of weird how much we throw away, the, throw around the word crank and, uh, and yeah, <laughs> looking look over the Irish Sea. <laughs> Ian Dunt is editor at largerpolitics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. So today the government released a list of the honours which make artists, scientists and so on eligible for fast-tracked immigration to the UK as part of its best and brightest strategy. And it's weirdly specific. An Oscar will not do. Uh, it has to be the right Oscar. So a Best Actor Oscar counts, but not Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> Nobel Prize for Literature, good, come on in, but not an International Booker Prize. Never heard of it, mate. And, and, with, and most bizarrely of all, there's only one Grammy that counts, the Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously many winners of the Grammy, the Lifetime Achievement Grammy, are going to want to um, fast-track uh, their visas to the UK. What on earth is the point of this if the best and brightest only counts as people who have already risen to the top of their profession and not perhaps people that might be uh, on their way? Yeah, and that's all, that's, I mean, that's always the sort of idea with this stuff, right? Like when they talk about it in business, when they talk about it in science, what they mean by best and brightest is someone who's already at the pinnacle, therefore will let this person in. It's never about that idea of actually sort of oh God, I'm going to use a phrase I fucking hell, hate, but like investing in people. And I don't even mean that in a really idealistic sort of way. I just mean the kind of rules we used to have 
for people, for foreign students who did an MA here, of giving them a bit of time to find work. Like, you know, that is just, you know, this is not, you know, the, oh, let's have free borders. So this is basically just saying, look, there's a disproportionately people who are quite well off who are disproportionately likely to start their own businesses and do really quite well. And you do well for yourself as a country to just let them stay and see if they can create the work here. Like it's not, you know, it's all pretty level-headed stuff. But even that seems too much of an act of generosity a lot of the time. So instead you just get this thing of, you know, even the best supporting actor is not enough. <laughs> you, know, you really, you've got to win the major prize before we let you in. Bad news for Brad Pitt there. Try a little harder. Well, who wants Brad Pitt, right? I mean, what kind of a country would lower itself to the status <laughs> of allowing Brad Pitt to live there? You've also been researching for work, not pleasure, uh, the prospect of summer holidays abroad this summer. Should Well, obviously, should we start packing? Well, I mean, you should, as according to what the government's going to do. I mean, they're, they're making it pretty clear. Well, it looks like from May 17th, you know, they'll be talking about us being able to go to places like Malta, maybe Portugal, and then later on in the summer, they'll add places, or they wish to, like in sort of France and Spain. I mean, this is a pretty shit idea, I have to say. And I don't get any joy from saying it, because I don't fucking like staying in this country for my holidays at all. And people say that's because you know, you're a London metropolitan elitist who doesn't really like spending time in the rest of the country. And I say, that is correct. That is entirely accurate. Like, I want to go away. I want to sit on a beach more than anything on earth. And it just, whichever way you break it down, it does not seem like a very sensible time to do it. And I feel like we're on the verge of doing, having one of these moments where we just get sort of giddy with overexcitement and start opening up too quickly. And things, if you open up domestically, which at the moment seems like it's going really very, very well. Like we haven't really seen much of an uptick. You need to be pretty careful about what's going on at the border. And you speak to sort of public health experts, they point to, to places like Chile, you know, which is places that they've really done quite a lot of vaccination. And as soon as people started traveling around, the thing is, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't vaccinated. And there's a lot of people who do have the vaccine, but will still get ill. I mean, there's comparatively few, the vaccine works very, very, very well. But, you know, we're still talking about something that is not absolutely effective. So you can still, during the vaccination process, get these surges, get another wave and end up in another lockdown in the same way that you did before. It wouldn't be as bad as the previous lockdown. There wouldn't be so many deaths, but you can still get to that situation. That is a situation which Chile is in right now, albeit with a shitter vaccine than the one that we have. It is a considerably worse vaccine. But nevertheless, when you look at the numbers, it's predominantly people, you know, in the age group that haven't had the vaccine that are ending up in hospital. So it just seems like one, another one of those cases where you're just like, just hold back. The truth is, the point is September. In September, we're fully vaccinated here. We're fully vaccinated in Europe. That's not that far away. And that is a sensible time to be talking about which countries can we open up to, which looks safe that we could go to. But doing it now is basing everything on sort of a seasonal timetable, basically in time for the summer holidays, rather than one that's based on public health and the pandemic. If you are going on a beach holiday, you can buy your Sorry About Brexit beach towel on the Best of Britain website in our little <laughs> shop if you want to. Never let an opportunity pass you by, Naomi. <laughs> yeah, so amuse the people to whom you are giving the variant. <laughs> <laughs> our guest this week yeah. first appeared on the show in the Coronaless Britain of February 2020. It's political sketch writer for The Independent, Tom Peck. Hi, Tom. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, I think when I came to your record the podcast with you guys in February 2020 was honestly the last time I left my house. Um, wow. And I uh, and, um, and went out with a bang. Still, still in it now. Same, yeah, same time we all left the house as well. <laughs> I think I made one or two gags about coronavirus on that podcast that have aged badly. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Happy days. Tom, you've asked in your pieces with uh, mounting frustration um, where the anger is towards Johnson and the government over the mismanagement of the pandemic. I mean, obviously now we're, we're looking at a very successful vaccine rollout. Is that the only reason why there hasn't been this anger? Or was, or was it, were you sort of finding it a little odd before the vaccine was introduced that the, the people weren't blaming the government more? I find that question harder to answer because I am probably not revealing too much about my own views to suggest that I have loathed the government entirely for a very long time. So <laughs> it's difficult for me to judge what is the why it is that other people don't loathe them because I just, I mean, I'll never really know the answer to that. 
But um, I, I guess there should have... Well, as you say, a lot of the pieces that I wrote is why aren't people more angry? And if I'd had an answer to that question, believe me, I would have, I would have written it in the columns, but I, but I hadn't got one. So <laughs> you're it's waiting to, give, to tell us. But, but, <laughs> yes. But I do... I mean, I do think that... Um, obviously, the Brexit seems like a long time ago now, but people are nonetheless slightly bound to their view on it and in, in that way the people are polarised to be for or against the government and with the vaccine rollout coming when it has done it, it pains me to say this it sticks in the craw but if you are somebody who loves Brexit and has had who has spent five years sort of being told by people like me that you're stupid it is it, there is a reasonable case for you to honestly believe that the vaccine rollout is linked to Brexit and thereby, you are a genius, and Boris Johnson is the Messiah. And, mm. and it's not—it's not entirely unreasonable either. To the, the, the the link between the vaccine rollout and Brexit, sadly, is kind of kind of real in the sense that obviously the vaccine rollout could have been done in the way it's done by any government, regardless of Brexit. But would a, I think probably only a Eurosceptic government of the kind that was in position at the time would have done what they did, i.e. said no to the European Medicines Agency. I mean, Dominic Cummings said at that select committee, didn't he, that the EU scheme, which we were invited to join, looked like an absolute horror show that was doomed to fail, and we said no way. Mm. And he's been vindicated. And I suspect, although I don't know, other governments would not have been vindicated in that way. I mean, Tony Blair has been very effective on vaccines from the start. So maybe he too would have seen what Dominic Cummings saw, but of course we don't know. So So I do think it's reasonable and accurate to say that a lot of people feel vindicated about Brexit through the vaccine. And that is um, borne out by the current polling and the results that we might see this week. Well, indeed, this week on the show, the local elections are upon us, along with elections in Scotland and Wales, mayoral elections in cities including London, the all-important Hartlepool by-election. It's elections, elections, elections. What can we expect from the first electoral clash between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson? Will it be an even more disappointing night than the line of duty finale? And the government is stepping up its efforts to politicise cultural institutions and museums to the BBC as part of its so-called war on woke. How much difference can they make? And is it all a bit too Orban for comfort? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we talk about the enduring lure of the good old man in the street pint of beer as a totem of political authenticity. Why do politicians do it and can we make them stop? First, one last reminder that our election special live Zoom is tomorrow night, Friday 7th of May at 6.30pm. Or if you're listening on Friday today, or if you're listening on Friday at 6.30pm right now. Join me, Ian, Alex Andreu, Minnie Rahman and Roz Taylor in the election war room for an evening of celebration slash commiseration, plus audience questions. Registration is free to Patreon people. And if you're listening on Friday morning, there is still time to sign up. Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast, pledge us anything from £2 a month and we'll see you later. First up, as we record, we're less than 24 hours away from the polls opening across the country for local councils, for governments in Scotland and Wales, for metro mayors and local police and crime commissioners and for the MP for Hartlepool. By the time you hear this, some of the results will be out. So this is the hostage to fortune section of the podcast. Mm, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the timetable is, is always difficult, right? With the whole record Wednesday yeah, yeah. come out Friday, but this <clears throat> fuck yeah. me. So we'll start with you. Um, a Salvation poll at the beginning of the week put the Tories 17 points ahead of Labour in Hartlepool. Keir Starmer sounded nervous, saying that Labour has a mountain to climb and he will take full responsibility for the result. Now, Ian, in seats where the Brexit Party stood down in 2019, over 90% of their European election support went to the Tories. So are you expecting, could, could if Labour loses Hartlepool, could it be explained as what would have happened in 2019 if Richard Tice hadn't stood and split the Leave vote? Or is that letting the new leadership off the hook? Well, it's the, the answer sort of yes to both, isn't it? Because, yeah, I mean, look, that, that is one of the things that is happening. Um, but it's not like the leadership doesn't know this process like the, the you know every time you know you see sort of like very very cross sort of people from our side of things attacking Starmer for not being more vocal on Brexit or him sidestepping a culture an obvious culture war attack you know it's because of this dynamic so they are aware so it, even though that is the case you're still t- and even though you know for some like there's some people when they analyze this they're sort of going look it's essentially it's a Tory seat you know it just doesn't look that way right now so we're not talking about it in a fair way. 
I mean, the thing is, that can all be the case, but they have to achieve this task. And it's not really just Hartley. I mean, by-elections are fucking weird, man. Like, they, they do all sorts of weird shit. I mean, if you remember, like, I think it was 2013, Eastleigh, and there was a moment, you know, where the Lib Dems, we presumed would lose the seat, and they kept the seat, basically because they could throw all of their money into one place. And after that, we were all just like, oh, so maybe the Lib Dems are all right, man. Maybe they're going to come <laughs> out of this coalition thing okay. And, you know, a few years later, you're like, oh, no, no, they, they were fucked. They really were. We just didn't realize. They are quite odd moments. But, like, of course, I mean, when you look at sort of, you know, the mayoralty for Tees Valley of the West Midlands, if you're looking at sort of, Bolton, Dudley counts. I mean, these races, like, even if we can be waking up on Friday, maybe, maybe in, in, you know, lots of these cases, Starmer would have sort of scraped by. But that isn't enough. Like, this is not what you would be looking at if you're expecting to win in, you know, four, three, four years' time. It, it just isn't. So we have to be straight up about that, pretty much regardless of what the result is. Like, you know, it's just too tight to have any confidence about what's mm. going to happen over the next few years. Um, and Johnson has framed the Tories as the insurgent party in Hartlepool, throwing off the yoke of decades of Labour misrule. Listeners may be aware that the national government is, in fact, free to improve investment and employment and so on <laughs> in any part of the country, even places with Labour MPs. But is this change message sort of emotionally effective nonetheless? I don't really know. I mean, look, I, and I haven't been up there, obviously, Um not because I hate leaving London, but because, you know, of the, the lockdown and all that kind of stuff. Um, but from the stuff I've been reading, it, the, the impression you get is of a much more cynical throwing in your lot of sort of going, well, look, you know, th- there's this sort of, and cynical kind of in a good way, you know, and they're thinking, you know, you've had years of not having, of Labour not really doing much for these areas, you know, and that goes, you can't blame this stuff on, you know, just on Corbyn, you know, and that goes way back and it goes even back to sort of even Blair period. You know, just thinking, well, we didn't, you know, it didn't work out. No one gave us shit. So now, you know, there's this sort of push for the Tories to do it. If you link up, if you have areas where there's Tories with a voice to power, then you can secure more funding that way. And and there's an impression in some of the pieces I've read from the sort of conversations I've been had with people there that that is the kind of thinking that's there. Now, that's interesting, right? Because that's also very, very fickle. That's very, very brittle. Like, you can break that down. And for the more positive slant, like, I feel like we are super doom laden this week and for, for good reason. And we probably will be pretty fucking doom laden in that live thing on Friday. So, you know, good times, bring the beer. But when you do look at some of the polling, I mean, look at the polling that was in the Sunday Times over the weekend, which was putting Labour sort of narrowly ahead in 43 red wall seats. I mean, narrowly ahead, fucking like percentage pointage. But nevertheless, you, you saw there that it felt as if actually that sleaze stuff was starting to have a bit of an effect. And you take you have to take that on board with all the stuff that we already know, but is worth repeating, which is just right now, it's almost the worst possible time for, for you know, Labour to be having these contests. You can't, it's hard to get out there to speak to people in the ground game, which is really quite important. Starmer doesn't really have an ability to speak in halls. He doesn't get heard as much as the Prime Minister. I just got my text, like, fucking like an hour ago about my first vaccine. And I felt pretty buoyant about that shit. You know, people are just getting a shot of, of goodwill towards government all the time. So, you know, all of this, these are strong, you know, it, it makes it very, very difficult indeed. And this is not a fair test. But nevertheless, you do look at it and just think it ain't great. And you'd have to be probably overly generous to pretend otherwise. Tom, as Ian mentioned, Salvation also put out a Westminster voting intention poll to put Labour uh, just one point behind the Tories, which is a major improvement on recent weeks. Do you think um, that it's sleaze stories that explain this this narrowing? I don't know how substantial and long-lasting it will prove to be, but it's it seems to be there. Yeah, well, the honest answer is I've got no idea. And one of my... Um, <laughs> one of, well, but, no, but, no, but nobody's got any idea, have they? Unless you also ask the people you poll, why have you changed your mind? We don't know who's changed their mind and so on and so forth. One of my golden rules as a journalist, pundit, gobshite, whatever you want to call it, is not to get too... <laughs> into the world of polls really i mean for a start if, if, if there is a poll narrowing at the moment then whoever spent what on the downing street flat or whoever's been shunted into the vip lane on ppe to tory donors to deliver contracts for shit products that they never actually make is not really going to have a bearing in the general election in 2024 which is the only point at which a poll really matters rafael bear wrote a good piece in the guardian today didn't he about how um Labour are relentlessly attacking the Tories on sleeves because they think that it will deliver for them today what it delivered for them in the mid-90s. And actually, it's probably not the case because 
Labour and the Tories only won a landslide general election 18 months ago. This idea that you can tell the voters that well, to win a general election, you always have to tell some voters that they got it wrong last time. But in 1995, 96, you can tell them, like, come on, it's, we've had 18 years of this now. Whereas mm. to start telling people, oh, same old Tories, they're all the same, they're all disgrace, you all know it. Well, a hell of a lot of them have only just voted for them. So it doesn't necessarily work in that way. You have to sort of persuade people in a more dexterous way, if you like. But I, is the sleaze stuff changing people's minds? Probably. What, what, one thing I would say is that it isn't sleaze. To me, sleaze is, I mean, I don't know what you guys think. To me, sleaze is like shagging your secretary or like at worst, like running up the company credit card in a strip club or something. Sleaze is not the same as corruption. Mm. And what's being discussed here is corruption. Moody contracts uh, is corruption. Not saying who has paid a load of, given you a load of private money for your personal enjoyment. Not being honest about it to the extent where there now has to be a load of official inquiries into what's gone on with this Downing Street flat refurbishment and a hell of a ridiculous amount of official time. Sleaze is the wrong word. It's straightforward corruption. And I, I, I guess people probably don't like that stuff, but they will only switch from one party to the other if the other party gives them a reason to vote for them. We're not the other guy. Mm. It tends not to be enough. And I'm not sure as Keir Starmer has got his head around that yet. In London, uh, Sadiq Khan's well ahead of Tory Sean Bailey, and it was reported weeks ago the Tories had stopped funding Bailey's campaign. Um, and I've read a couple of pieces suggesting that they've given up on sort of campaigning for a city that Boris Johnson won twice. So have they basically decided that London is sort of a deep red, the red circle, you can use that? Or is it down to sort of Bailey's specific performance art incompetence? You know, with a different <laughs> candidate, they'd be, they'd be trying harder. At the moment... What, uh, any sort of demographic change is immediately linked to Brexit or uh, currently COVID, and it actually masks the fact that potentially deeper change is going on. And that deeper change being people with degrees coming to cities, and then the sort of the degree educated fanning out via London into other cities and making cities labour and people not in cities where there are not so many young people Tory. And in that sense, London has such a huge, strange pig in the Python demographic of all all people in their 20s and 30s that quite possibly the Tories consider London London to be a lost cause. It's certainly a lost cause electorally currently. And it was a lost cause for Zach Goldsmith, who you think might have fared a bit better. He was obviously a dreadful candidate, but not in the same order of magnitude of dreadfulness as, as Sean Bailey. Um, I, I, I'm quite sure they won't have given up on London forever. It wasn't that long ago that they won it with a guy called Boris Johnson. Mm. They may have their time again, but they, I'd, I, to, it, it would appear that for they, they think it's a lost cause. Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly is a lost cause, but I'm not convinced that it would be. It wouldn't be a great deal less lost with a better candidate. Also, bear in mind that, that, that this is the last we will have to hear about candidate Lawrence Fox for a while. So that's. That's at least one thing to celebrate yeah, on the well, night. That, well, that is true. You've jinxed it now. <laughs> it is odd, isn't it? <clears throat> the, the, the political pundits seems when well, seems to be sort of, especially with this um, with this Downing Street flat story. There seems to be a great orgy of them telling people, "Oh, the public don't care about this. The public aren't interested. They don't. They, they, they if, if some if, if we didn't pay for it, then the public don't care." Then in the next breath, the public apparently really, really do care about the intricate details of the election campaign of a guy who is polling significantly below Count Bimface. Lawrence Fox should just, be, should just be permanently ignored. I mean, I've never, as it happens, I have never... That's the first, this, what is happening right now, is the first time that I've done anything which could be construed as journalism on the subject of Lawrence Fox. I've never written those two words in an article. I've never written them on Twitter. He should just be completely ignored. Way to make us feel shit about ourselves, Tom. <laughs> it's just a bit of light relief. <laughs> Naomi, how well do you think the SNP are going to do? Do you think they will need, I mean, you know, you're allowed to, you're allowed to sort of make a guess here. Um, do you think they'll end up needing sort of a green support skewer majority in Holyrood, but could they, could they actually get over the 50% mark themselves? I mean, that, that's it. We've got to remember that the SNP are a minority government at the moment uh, in Holyrood. So the question, as you sort of say, is whether or not they can get an outright majority this time. I don't know. It's narrowing for them slightly. What we know is that they are going to do well. 
Um, and if the latest polling is accurate, they will likely have three times as many MSPs as the next biggest party. And we don't know whether that next biggest party is going to be Conservative or Labour because they appear to be neck and neck. So they're, they're going to get the largest vote share in both the constituencies and on the lists. Um, and so Salmon's uh, Alaba party strategy doesn't appear to be working. Um, and you're right that the Scottish Greens do seem to be doing relatively well on the lists, certainly much better than the Liberal Democrats. But I don't think the Conservatives are doing as badly as you'd expect them to be, uh, given how much Johnson is loathed north of the border, along with his Brexit, and their neck and neck for seats with Labour, who have had a slight bounce since electing their new leader. And I think what's really interesting is which of the two of them is going to become the official opposition party because of the significance for independence. So if it's the Conservatives that have the, the, the next largest number of seats, that will be a big boost for the SNP because it's incredibly helpful for them to frame nationalism in opposition to conservatism. But if Labour are the second largest party, then it could potentially help the no campaign's fortunes a bit. And um, as for your Friday night uh, live show, um, the results for, for Scotland are expected to trickle through on Friday, but maybe not have a clear picture of it until Saturday. So, so it may be a bit too early for you to talk about it in full then. Well, there's something that might seem a little paradoxical in the polls. As they say, a, a big SNP victory seems inevitable and will increase pressure for another referendum. But uh, Scottish voters seem to be split 50-50, whether there should even be one in the next five years. And yes and no are also sort of frequently tied, um, you know, sort of bobbing up and down. Why is there not so much appetite for independence or even a referendum if there is so much uh, appetite for the SNP, whose entire political project (laughs) is uh, having and winning another independence referendum? Well, the SNP aren't polling 50% at the moment. Um, it looked possible for them uh, towards the end of last year, but but they're sort of down in the low 40s at the moment. So perhaps, you know, the question can be the other way around. And yeah. you do get this strange polling phenomenon in other situations too. Um, you know, you'll occasionally poll voters on their Westminster voting intention and then you'll ask them about whether or not they support EU membership or something like that and you'll get things like you know even five percent of UKIP voters support EU membership you know these just you know these things happen and I think it's also worth remembering that not all nationalists vote SNP because of course some do vote green as well so I think actually the question is probably the other way around. Ian, Ian, to wrap up, the current narrative is so bad for Labour that simply doing a bit better than expected um, will, will, will seem pretty good. But let's imagine the narrative turns out to be correct. And it seems that he has two battles to fight. One's external against the Tories, uh, which means solving these sort of huge long-term problems, which, like you said, some of which go back to you know the Blair years. Um, and the other is internal against disgruntled Corbynites. Um, now, the second is very, very noisy, particularly online. Is it really worth his time and energy? Is there anything he, he can sort of do about that? I mean, oh, it's so hard because answering a question like this, you've got to have like your emotional instincts on the one hand and then your moral and intellectual and political ones on the other. Because emotionally, I am just at the point, there's just so little content there. So so often from the Corbyn guys, I just sort of think it is just an irrelevance. They can fuck off. Let's just think about what works. However, I mean, if you look at what has worked for Biden, you know, it is... You know, you're a moderate, but you are open to and listening to mm. idealistic young people, which is not, you know, which isn't just, it's, there's, there's overflows of the Corbyn stuff, but there's a, a broader sense. Just idealistic young people who you really do need, by the way, to get them out to work for you at these kinds of elections, if there's any hope, you know, of winning the next one. And it's sort of sifting through the policy platforms that they hold and say, which work, which actually can get a hearing from people outside of that group and which don't. So, you know, when it when it came to the broader Black Lives Matter stuff for Biden, that did work. When it came to defund the police, it's like, well, you know, that gets 8% support in the country because it sounds mad, even though it isn't, but it doesn't matter because it sounds mad. So we're not obviously not going to fucking adopt that. And that kind of attitude, I think, could be quite helpful to some. I mean, the real danger at the moment is that, you know, the, the need not to offend either side just makes you come across as just kind of redundant. You know, like no one can say, what is it that you're really for? No one will be inspired by it. If you can get into a situation with the left of the party where you're just they're churning out policy proposals and you take the ones that you think can work for the mainstream, that puts you in a good stead. And I think the same goes, by the way, for the right of the party, 
who I would disagree with more, I think, than on the left, on things like immigration and blah, 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 and patriotism, that they could just sift through their proposals for things that don't seem to incense the other side. And that might give you a process whereby you can find, you know, the positive message that you have that isn't just about trying to not upset either part of, of, of the wings of your party. Now, on that, I think that, that can be a conducive relationship. The thing is, that's not just Starmer that has to do that work. I don't want to sound like a fucking marriage counsellor, but, you know, it's not just Starmer's job. It's also there. If there is a, a policy conversation there, a dialogue of some sort, whereby you, you find the mainstream propositions, I think that, that could really be beneficial to both sides. Now, who's up for a long march through the institutions? <laughs> the Conservatives seem to be going further than most governments in packing key positions with friendly voices. There's a prospect of Paul Dacre running Ofcom hasn't gone away, even though the Observer reported at the weekend that DCMS officials were fighting a last-minute rearguard action to keep him out. The government was already appointed a while back Richard Sharp, a former advisor to Rishi Sunak and a Tory party donor as chair of the BBC, and former Downing Street communications director Robbie Gibb, who thinks the BBC culturally captured by the woke-dominated groupthink of some of its own staff, has just been appointed to the board of the woke-dominated groupthink BBC. And Charles Dunstan, <laughs> the billionaire owner of Carphone Warehouse, just stepped down from the Royal Museum's Greenwich Board because fellow trustee Aminal Hoke, who advocates for decolonising the university curriculum, had his reappointment blocked by Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden. Is this just what governments do, or are the Conservatives using their power to reshape the country in ways that will outlast a general election? Name, we don't traditionally think of m- mobile phone billionaires as lefty culture warriors. Um, so does Dunstan's resignation suggest that Oliver Dowden's habit of blocking reappointments has gone too far, that it's kind of really ruffling feathers? By my reading of it, Dunstan is definitely not a, a lefty culture warrior. He's actually a, a former uh, Conservative Party donor, you know, is is a very interesting development. But I would probably put it in the category of necessary but not sufficient in terms of it being a step towards stopping the rot. One resignation does not, you know, turn, turn the tanker on this, but it will have, it will have raised eyebrows in, in number 10. And the Zaranti woke lot are always talking about how important freedom of thought and speech are. But one chair of a major cultural institution anonymously accused the government of cultural cleansing. Do you think that's like, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty loaded term. Do you think that is what's going on? <laughs> well, I mean, they do seem to want to cancel cancel culture, but without any sense of irony that that's what they're trying to do. Um, it, I mean, look, it's just it's just back to this bad winners scenario that we've talked about so many times and the fact that this government is so desperately insecure, despite its ATC majority, that it has to be constantly in campaigning rather than governing mode. And it, it its beliefs seem so brittle that they just can't stand to be challenged by anyone, you know, not even the most sort of moderate critical friends. Um, There's this constant us or them narrative. You're you're either with us 100% or you must be against us and therefore purged. And I was thinking about this earlier, just like the low trust environment is just palpable now. I mean, we heard this morning that number 10 are now filming ministers as they read the embargoed Queen's speech Uh, out next week to deter any of them from leaking because they have such low levels of of trust in each other. And anyone who's worked in that kind of toxic environment knows how horrendous it is and thankfully how unsustainable those kinds of organisations and cultures are in the long term. Well, I mean, I'm always a little bit, you know, loath sort of, you know, to do the Boris as a fascist thing. Um, But there seems to be an effort to create an intellectual... (laughs) I <laughs> justification. Well, you know what I mean. I like to use words sort of carefully. He's, he's many, many things, but you, you yeah. kind of want to go. Well, he's not. He's not. He's not yet, Victor Orban. But um, the right wing academic Eric Kaufman um, made this argument that because cultural institutions have a political role, uh, they should, you know, political influence. They should reflect uh, the public's democratic will. But isn't that just what authoritarians do? Do you think there there, there, there seems to be a kind of like an authoritarian intellectual framework to sort of to, to justify this? 
And so I, I sort of agree with Eric in terms of uh, reflecting democratic will. But we've really? got to remember that people voted, more people voted for the opposition parties at the last election than the governing party. So I agree. And public bodies should represent the full breadth of opinion, not just the minority opinion of voters who decided the outcome of the 2019 general election. But should they have anything? Should cultural institutions have anything to do with the, you know, the vote? Well, I mean, if if, uh, if you are going to have that that um, public opinion reflection there, then then yes. Um, obviously, most of the appointments really ought to be on on merit and, and linked to those institutions. Of course, you know you want expertise, but you do also need diversity of opinion and thought in all boards, and and you know, and people can bring transferable skills from other sectors and things like that. So, I, I agree with him to the extent that that if if you're going to do it, then it shouldn't just be the governing party uh, political attitude that's represented. Ian. Governments are used to using the power of appointment, um, particularly when it comes to, for example, the BBC chair, you know, that the, the Labour appointed kind of friendly people to that job. How is what this government is doing different from the norm? Yeah, no, I mean, arguably, arguably say Labour was a bit more kind of knives out during that whole Iraq thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, it definitely was. Hmm. Um, I mean, the difference surely is cultural war, right? Which is, it's a qualitative difference. But we shouldn't, you know, like... You look at the people around Johnson in number 10. I mean, the fact that he is all over the place, and this is key with that whole, you know, Johnson is not Orban. Johnson is not Orban. Like, he does not have some kind of sustained ideological position. Arguably, Orban didn't earlier, but he certainly does now. And he's not as severe. He's not as extreme. Even Trump wasn't as extreme as Orban. But the people around Johnson are consciously engaged in this stuff. Like, look at Manira Mirza, right, director of number 10. I mean, that, that you know, she is from Spiked Online. You can't repeat that enough. I mean, this this is the Spiked Online view around the PM. And of course, it doesn't come mm. out undiluted, clear cut, because that's not the kind of prime minister you've got there. You know, you've got this kind of warbling vacuity through which everything circles and then bits of it come out. But nevertheless, you can still see this kind of, kind of almost like a Ribena version of the Orban sort of agenda. I mean, like, and, and you know, that like in Hungary, that agenda is fucking strenuous, right? Like they went against the Hungarian Academy of Sciences, which had been around for fucking like, like nearly 200 years because you got to, because there was a sense that they might start talking about the ethnic diversity of the Hungarian population. Like they went against the 1956 Institute because there was a sense that they were going to challenge the kind of monocultural narrative. They got sort of government NGO, government NGOs, by the way, when you think about what that actually spells out, is just the stupidest phrase anyone has ever invented. But nevertheless, they got government NGOs that sort of put out position papers. And it's all about massaging that cultural narrative. Now, for Hungary, that's the monoculture and ethnicity. Here, it sort of seems to mostly be based around colonial history. You know, just this, mm-hmm. this attempt to just re- to massage and rewrite that sense of history to prevent any kind of critical assessment of any of it. And I do think that that's a, that is to the extent that anything is sustained and coherent around Johnson, there, there is a sustained sort of warbling coherent plan. It seems to me that institutions reflect the views of those who work in them. And that is why universities are, why they are, and museums. <laughs> What, why, what, how they are. So how much difference can the government make by installing these sort of ideologically approved people at the top unless they're then going to proceed to sort of massive purges of the, of the other ranks? I think, isn't it, that so much in sort of life and, and politics and just even from sort of academic to sort of campaigning to political parties is about thinking, where's the frame? You know, like what, you know, what does one side think and the other? We always think that, you know, on the one hand, on the other, you know, the right and left, the remaining parts. And yet, if you can get yourself into a position culturally where you define a frame, that changes where the middle is. And I think for the, especially for the BBC right now, where you really get that sense of the injection, you know, not just that, I mean, you see Tim Davey has totally internalized it, that, you know, that, that it has a problem with its metropolitan bias, that it demonstrated that problem during Brexit. Whereas in fact, during the Brexit years, it really wasn't, I mean, it really clearly was striving for a middle ground and satisfying absolutely fucking no one. I mean, I would strenuously argue that was one of its worst periods where it just wasn't giving people the kind of factual information for them to come up with a sort of objective view of things, regardless of where you stood on the issues. So really, I think what, what it does is just push you into thinking for each moment, if you're working one of those institutions, 
your your second thought is like, oh well, what would what would the anti woke guys, you know, that that are there that are clearly concerned about this kind of metropolitan elite, and what would they think about what I'm doing? And by that, in a kind of subtle, sometimes sort of barely um, articulated shift, I think that a change does happen in the, in the kind of things that you see put out. Tom, what do you make of Culture War Secretary Oliver Dowden? Is this what really motivates him? Does he have this kind of ideological streak, as in, as Munira Mirza does? Or is he sort of just being a, a good little soldier? Well, I think he's certainly being a good little soldier. And he's fighting a very easy war in which he imagines he can win. I mean, there is there's principle, there are two aspects to this, right? Two very clear aspects. One is the general dreary culture war stuff. And the Tories have been playing the easy shots on this and they have been for a while. Um, it worked for them over Brexit. There's no reason why they wouldn't carry on doing it. I mean, this is the sort of the stuff about statues, um, just general easy culture war stuff. And to be fair, the, if the, the, the pro statue removal lobby, if you like, are, are just as dreary as the anti on, on this. I mean, this, the real debate about that should be the hard stuff about um, structural prejudice discrimination and if you're black like the stuff that Theresa May said on the steps of Downing Street if you're if you're black then you don't get a fair chance by the criminal justice system but there's not really many people in the media who that actually affects so we find it much 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 easier to do the sort of statue stuff because we've all got humanities degrees and that's pretty easy but then and then part two which is the more important part really is the BBC stuff BBC the BBC the deliberate attempt to make the BBC the new Brexit, if you like, the, the new thing to argue about, the, the centre ground in the culture war. And, and that obviously they are putting their friends into the BBC as a way of winning that. I mean, Tim, Tim Davey, the BBC Director General, is, is in his own words, trying to declare, is sort of waging war on perceived bias at the BBC. Now, if you wage a war on perceived bias, that, is, gives, that opens up your pasture to take in <laughs> almost anybody, and not, <laughs> least, not least the fact that Tim Davey, it's not, not a secret, it was deputy chair of his conservative, local conservative association, and he ran to be a conservative councillor. So the, if you don't have to look too hard on Google Images to find a picture of Tim Davey wearing a dirty great big blue Tory rosette, and this is the guy fighting a war of perceived bias. So the, institu- the institution of which he is head... Would he be punching himself in the face well, <laughs> to get out the perceived bias? Well, exactly. If you, if you want to declare a war on perceived bias at the BBC... Is a war he can only win when he sacks himself, which one suspects will not happen. <laughs> the battle, if you like, between the BBC and Tory politicians is is raw power, and it's been going on for a long, 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 long time. Like people like David Dimbleby have consistently refused to give an inch, if you like, like, like they won't yield to any kind of reform because they know that it's just about power. And of course, within the Tory party, the very right wing bit of the Tory party, and specifically the anti BBC bit is more powerful than it has been for a, for a very long time, like the select committee chairs and so on and so forth. But it's not necessarily the case that they will win that war, if you like, because generally the public are much more pro-BBC than the parties that they have put into government are. So that will make their battle quite hard to win on that front. And finally, uh, Harry Lambert, the new statesman who does some great coverage of the BBC, um, did a little roundup of Robbie Gibbs' political statements, not just pro-Brexit and anti-Labour. Um, he defended Dominic Cummings' trip to Durham, attacked and actually attacked Newsnight's Lewis Goodall uh, for alleged bias. Is it, you know, is this something that could be done and sort of um, some reform introduced to sort of slow or halt the revolving door between Westminster <laughs> and the BBC? Because surely it's damaging to their reputation for impartiality to see people like Gibb and Allegra Stratton move from one to the other and then sometimes back again. I think it's when they come back again that you get really get the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's my job to take the piss out of politics. And of course, the great tragedy is that so often you're just reduced to typing out what's happened that day. And of course, this whole procession of people like Robbie, all of these people who like Andrew Neil, Robbie Gibb, Leaving, running the BBC politics department, the flagship into a, interviewer of the BBC, and then leaving it because they're so biased against the position, political position that these guys who've been running the BBC have held whilst running the BBC for decades. I mean, it's obviously laughable, but I, ju- I just don't think that the public really care very much about it. The public like the BBC, and so I, I just don't think that this war on it will ultimately have very much success. 
Do you think that uh, revealing the identity of H in Line of Duty has damaged the BBC in the eyes of the public? Is this, <laughs> is this something they can recover from? <laughs> I've written, a, I've just f- finished writing my column today. I, I saw that people were saying about Line of Duty that um, the, the moment that this H was revealed as this shambling, bumbling idiot who'd, who'd risen all the way to the top suddenly meant that Buckles was supposed to be um, Boris Johnson. But if there is a new series, I think the conclusion will be that, that will be that actually the real H all along was David Cameron, who everyone thought was an idiot, but has completely banned Jack's Labour north of the border and south of the border, got his country out of the EU, having been a Eurosceptic all his life. And everyone thinks he's an idiot, but he's actually just sitting around in some tent coining 50 million quid out of a guy who's just all he wants to do is pay the NHS bills for them. And actually, he's mugged everybody off and he's the real evil genius all along. <coughs> I, I buy it. <laughs> we shall see. Now it's time for Underrated Overrated, where each week we pick the John Lewis and the Lulu Little of politics. <laughs> this week it's our guest's turn. Uh, what are your categories, Tom? Well, loath as I am to have a go at your whole podcast, I mean, I actually even almost went for podcasts for overrated, but then thought that would be a bit what rude. What the fuck? <laughs> Don't shit where you eat, Tom. Cancelled. Oh, my God. That is some fucking war shit right there. Well, there, there, are, there, are, some, there are a hell of a lot of them, and you, you can't – this one is an excellent one, of course, but you, you, can, you can always skim read an article. It's very difficult to skim listen – a podcast unless you do it on high speed doubling and then yeah you can do that speed. i do that sometimes put it on two times speed oh I cons- i've considered doing that but this one would just be listening to ian the sweary chipmunk wouldn't it i actually have gone with polls um as something that is overrated i mean i know that we have talked about polls quite a lot so i'm sorry for that but if I was an editor of a newspaper, which I will never be, but were I, um, one of my golden rules, rules would be that a poll is is not a story. I think if your your job as a journalist is to tell people why they should vote for someone or not vote for someone, or let or at least give you know let them make their own mind up, um, and as soon as an election comes along, the whole of the political media establishment does this immediate sort of volt fast and considers its job to be predicting the future as will happen in, in a week's time or two weeks' time and thus not thus depriving, to a certain extent, the public of the sort of thing that's going to make them choose which party to vote for. And that, and that stuff makes a real difference. If, if suddenly two weeks out from an election, uh, all the public get to read is co- commentary on what they may or may not do, mm. that is a bit of a, that's a, bit of a, bit of a cop-out. I mean, soothsaying is, 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 not, is not journalism, in my view. You, you should be, journalists should be saying how things currently are, and best of all, here's something currently happening that you didn't know about that, that I've found out, not sort of reading the runes and saying, because of X, Y, and Z, this is what I think is going to happen in two weeks' time. I'm just, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not pro that, and, and polls are a big factor in all that. And I, I don't, I, I'm sure when I was young, although I don't really remember, like when I was very young, that you used to see the polls sort of on the, on a, as a sidebar on the newspaper, as a, a sort of a commentary on the news, and, and now they're the, they're the headline. And I don't really buy that. Underrated. Um, I've gone for just not caring. Um, um, uh, like none of my mates really care about politics, and I just think that they're all much happier than me. <laughs> um, I mean, I know that's probably not what anybody, and any of us here, and probably the listeners, want to hear. But like, you know, the, the results that come out. Um, well, sorry, we're. I mean, I don't want to pull the. The wizard's curtain back. It's not my wizard's curtain to pull back, but of course this 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 will come out after the results, and we're talking before the results. But basically, the results that sort of currently exist in this um, Schrodinger's box or, or whatever will sort of reveal that the country's non-Tory majority, majority is locked in a, in a completely epic stalemate. Right? Like Nic- Nicola Sturgeon's guiding principle, her sole motivation is that she thinks it's an outrage that Scotland should have to be governed by Tories when they haven't voted for them. Well, I mean, that's how we all feel, except that it really it's Nicola Sturgeon's fault. So I, I just don't see how this massive, this massive interlocking clusterfuck up is going to be resolved before 2024. So we're all staring down the barrel of another full decade of it. I mean, that's basically a whole adult lifetime, certainly the whole young adult lifetime, which is the only bit that really matters. 
<laughs> and the only coping strategy potentially for the next decade, it pains me to say it, especially given that I'm a political journalist, is to maybe care about it a bit less. And that's the show. Thanks to Naomi. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Ian. Thank you. And our guest, Tom Peck. Thank you very much. Now for our theme song, Demon is a Monster, and a thank you to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and best wishes from me to Jane Roberts, Kevin Waters, Nigel Blythe, Nicola de Tullio, and Wendy G. And huge thanks from me to Imogen Dempsey, Chris Luke, Francis Voucher, Stephen Dunkley, and Caroline Clayson. And thanks from me to Tim Driscoll, Richard Ives, John Lunn, Paul Williams, and Jack McClellan. We'll see you all next week. Oh, God, what now? It was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is the Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week we're looking at one of the cornerstones of the great British democracy, pictures of politicians with pints. Last week someone went to the trouble of photoshopping a disastrously cloudy pint of Guinness into Matt Hancock's hand to suggest that Hancock is A, hated enough for a bartender to sabotage his pint, and B, enough of a big old wally not to notice. It went viral before the fakery was discovered, but why do we care what politicians drink anyway? Ian, there's often talk of which politicians you would go for a pint with, as if that's the measure of authenticity. Farage was rarely pictured without one. In 2000, uh, William Hague famously boasted of downing 14 a day when he worked as a deliveryman for his parents' soft drinks firm as a teenager. Do you remember when it became such a talisman? Has it, has it been all your, uh, all your adult life, politicians waving pints in your face? I think it is, right? I can't ever remember... That not being a thing, because it, it just seems such an easy shortcut to, oh, I'm one of the boys. Have you seen Boris Johnson's face when he drinks beer? It's this kind of mockery of what he thinks a working man does when he has his, his first beer. He's like, oh, oh, that hit the spot. That hit the spot. <laughs> it just looks like you've never drunk a pint of beer in your fucking life. So like, I just, I, I presume that it's just a shortcut for that sort of stuff. You would hear it talked about a bit during the New Labour. I think it was Damien McBride's... Um, Memoirs, memoirs, are they called memoirs? I don't know, his sort of mm. account of life under Gordon Brown, where he, he sort of said, you know, the one time he saw Tony Blair in a pub with a bunch of people around him, he just looked like he'd never gone into a pub in his fucking life. And that was a taster of the After Hours lock-in version of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>